Welcome back to the next part of this Truth and Rhythm episode. Be sure to subscribe to this channel. If you've already done so, please share it with friends. Also become a member by joining Truth and Rhythm on Patreon or consider donating at funkinstuff.net. Thank you so much for your interest and support. Enjoy. Hey, before we get started with today's show, I just want to draw your attention to new merchandise. Funkin' Stuff and Truth and Rhythm designs are in, and they look pretty darn cool. So show your support, help support the program, and show off some stylish merchandise and apparel. Only at the Funkin' Stuff store. I learned all of these things by going through all these problems, and also the all the things that happened to Rufus with Shaka uh, uh, and, and our gigs. I remember we finished a concert opening for the Rolling Stones in Denver. And uh, we were it's right outside of Denver, Denver, wherever the stadium was. And I remember we got in the cars to leave. And Bobby and Shaka and the manager got in the car in back of us. And me and Tony and the other players are in the front car. And we're leaving to go back to the hotel. And I look in the back and... The car in the back of us, somebody proper wasn't driving. Shaka was driving the car. And I didn't know if Shaka was a driver or not. Next thing I knew, the car veered to the right and turned over in a ditch. And I jumped out of the car, and me and the, the road manager, Bruce Wayne, were running down this gravel thing, an adjacent road from the, you know, the Coliseum, which is right over there. We're running to the car to make sure everybody's okay. The first one out of the car was Bob Ellis, the manager. When he got out of the car, maybe because he was in shock, he got out of the car and closed the door and then walked towards us. There's three people still in the car. And I, I, you know, and I just yelled. I don't know why I thought he was supposed to be more conscious than everybody else. He, was, he probably hit his head. But I was always pissed because he didn't look back to check on any other people. So to me, I, I attributed that to being a manager. But anyway, <laughs> I can laugh at it now because Bob turned out to be, a, you know, a cool, a cool dude, you know. And uh, I remember visiting him over at uh, Diana's house and seeing Tracy when she was a little girl. You know, that was really funny. But uh, I, I remember all those times. Or uh, uh, one night, uh, we're, we're at some place getting ready to, on Stevie Wonder tour. And uh, I knock on Shaka's door because the, the venue's right across the street. And uh, nobody answered the door. 
and I look through the cracks, you know, the curtain, because they have the dark curtain and just a regular curtain, and I could see the crack through. And Nate, the keyboard player at Shaka, he's in a chair and she's laid across the bed. They're both out. And I don't know if they're asleep or they're dead. So we, we, I get the manager, he opens the door. Uh, Shaka and Odin. So at Nate, uh, we put we put Shaka in a, a upright. We try to wake everybody up in the whole routine. I remember I was the one who wound up having to take a, a, a Shaka to the to the doctor or to whatever the emergency room was. Um, I don't know what people's recollection of it, but my recollection is the the fear was the the young doctor who was there uh, at at admittance. Uh, and then I don't think they had uh, whatever the shot was. She was already coming out of it. I, they, they didn't mainline anything. I think they just snorted it. But I attributed to that that night, which meant we had to cancel with Stevie. You're on a Stevie Wonder tour and you cancel? Uh, what are you, nuts? And you're right across the street from the venue? So that took a lot of splaining. Okay, it's like Ricky Ricardo trying to explain, you know? So as far as that's concerned, but two things happened that night. One, I didn't take anything for granted. Two, we shouldn't have blamed Nate for, for, for what happened to Shaka, because after that, we blamed Nate and we let him go. That was a mistake. And uh, I regret that because Nate, Nate was just a, was a kid too. No matter how old he was, he was still the kid. And I'm quite sure there's nothing he would do on purpose to harm anyone, especially Shaka, but we held him responsible for the fact that he didn't keep it on point and that he wound up being messed up too. So that was, was it only one show that was missed or more than that? It was just the one because I don't think there was an immediate show the next day. So there was some recoup time. Uh, but the point is, is that the next thing I learned, this is totally the opposite from 360 from what I just said was how many people asked for their money back because Rufus didn't perform. Okay, you don't think about that when you're opening for Stevie. But the promoter, which was uh, the road manager, uh, which actually worked with Dick Griffey and, uh, and the folks that had promoted the tour, said that uh, I think 12 or 1,300 people had asked for their money back. They didn't stay to see Stevie because Rufus wasn't there. They came specifically to see Rufus. So on the one night Shaka is quasi OD'd, I also learned that enough people left that we could have done our own concert. We didn't have to open. So after that happened, we wound up doing our own gigs on the off days that we weren't performing with Stevie. We wound up getting our own headlining gigs. So because with Stevie, it didn't pay very much. It was the honor to work with Stevie. Plus, here's the guy, you know, where we who helped us put the song together, tell me something good. So when we got promoted at his show, it meant something, you know, because he's opening the spectrum in Philly and opening these great venues and they're packed. And, you know, it, we're, 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 we're being touted as something that's hanging out with, with boyfriend. All right. So anyway, uh, learned a lot through all of this, these, these ups and downs. And 
Bobby, did Shaka go and, and sing with Stevie at all during those shows? No. no. Stevie's background singers were Denise Williams, Shirley Brewer, and Suse Green. That's when I was there. And they were kicking. And then Stevie sang, and I think, I don't know if Nate sang, the bass player, somebody else sang too. But, but uh, no, I think, I think later years, Shaka, I saw her singing with Stevie. Not on his show, but, you know, say for a song during a performance. But when we were on tour with him, I, I, we didn't really do a lot of collabs. We, we were separate. I, I got to share something with you. I think after this album came out, it was around the time when you split, and I saw them perform at the Roxy in Hollywood. Yeah. In Sunset. Incredible show. And um, Shaka... You've been to the Roxy before? Many times. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, they have those uh, tables really close together that went up to the stage. Shaka came walking out on the tables, and I was right there. And she actually, in the middle of the show, ate one of my French fries. <laughs> she must have been hungry, man. <laughs> and she was complaining to the uh, lighting guy throughout the whole show that the light was too much in her eyes. Yeah. Um, but she blew the roof off that place. So, Well, you know, there's certain things she didn't care about. It's like we worked the whiskey. I remember one night we worked the whiskey and we were doing a couple sets there. First of all, the owner of the whiskey and the Rossi were, uh, was uh, Elmer and Mario. These two men that owned that club were from Chicago. So they knew we were from Chicago, and they, they, they loved us. They always gave us a, a break first to work there. And then second of all, Iggy Pop was on the show we were on. Iggy jumped off the stage one night. I guess not enough people caught him, and he hurt his back. So we had to do his set. For a couple of nights, we had to do his set and our set. It was very tiring. Shaka got pissed. Instead of understanding what a break it was to be at the whiskey and to do these extra sets, she got pissed and, and cussed and turned her back to the audience. Well, when we got in the dressing room night, one night, I was pissed and I ran up to her and started yelling at her and telling her that you don't ever do that shit. You're not, I said, you're not Miles Davis. <laughs> what a stupid thing to say. <laughs> I told her that and I, I, got, I got mad at her and, and I cussed her out and the, and the band got between me and her. And I, I, I wasn't going to touch, touch Shocker, but she pissed me off enough that, that I, I said, don't ever do that. You can't do that to an audience. You know, people spend hard-earned money to come here and do that shit. But, you, you know, she was green. Nobody trained her. Everything Shocker does, she learned on her own. There's a couple of things somebody may have taught her, but, a, but the majority of, of Shocker's chutzpah, that's from her. She figured that shit out on her own. You know, and I just remember those days and I told her, you just can't do that. But no one had sat down and, and talked to her uh, uh, on the professional side. You know, I, I just, they just didn't do it. Everybody was, was worried about their own shit all the time. But since I'd been the, the uh, uh, designated babysitter, I always had to go beyond just making sure she got there on time. You know, I had to give the words of wisdom or no, you don't do that or, you know, all that kind of stuff. I'm quite sure sometimes she listened and the other time she was like, you know, 
damn, I got another brother, you know? But the band was like, we were very uh, protective of her, which is just like she had a bunch of big brothers. And then when Bobby and Tony came in the band too, you know, it's like, we were always checking out, well, where are you going? Or who's that? Or the people that came around, we always tried to make sure. I remember beating up a drug dealer outside of a hotel room one time. And this guy just wouldn't leave. And I finally just grabbed him and said, I'm going to whip your ass. You get away from here. And he looked at me. He said, well, just wait a minute, bro. I said, what's happening? He said, you got to remember one thing. I said, what's that? He said, I was invited. I'm not trying to get in her room. She called me. So that just dawned on me. I remember calling my father that night. He said, Dre, he said, you, you can't save people that don't want to be saved. He said, she's, she, hasn't, she hasn't hit bottom yet. He said, she'll hit a bottom if she's a soldier and figure it out for herself and make a new mistake. It won't be that one. Okay, that's the only thing I worried about because I never knew when the drugs things was happening and Shaka was, was prone to be messed up uh, was when she was going to leave this earth, you know. But, but sometimes that's, that's a worry that... Um, that's a worry I shouldn't have had, you know, it, it should have been more, uh, uh, I should have got more people on the positive tip, but every, everybody was for a minute only concerned about themselves. You know, uh, I, I always wanted the best for Shaka. Even when the group broke up, you know, I always thought Rufus should have always played with different people and then come back together and see what we could bring from somewhere else. And I would have loved to have been, uh, um, uh, me and Bobby, say me and Bobby uh, Watson, to have been the ones to produce a project just on Shaka. I thought that would have been great because we know her like the back of our hand, you know. And and also I've seen all the other producers that, that have dealt with Shaka. The only one who had a handle on it also because he had access to some great songs was Arif. Some of the other records she's done have been okay, but they're not as memorable memorable to me as the older records are well, when she when she went out solo i kind of pinned it on her you know that she kind of left but then i've heard her say that she felt kind of forced out or something like that so i don't know what the true story is as far as that goes you you, you, you can't force shaka out that's not true no the, the guys would never do anything like that i think for for a while uh, everybody was whispering in Shaka ear, Shaka's ear that she was carrying Rufus, that she was the only thing, uh, that she was the star. I mean, they kept feeding her head. Even the manager, Bob Ellis did it too, because that's why that last album cover you picked up looks like that. The group was humiliated to see an album cover where were tiny stick figures down at the bottom. We, we had no idea that it looked like that. We didn't approve that. You know, we're, look at the pink album. You know, we're, we're on the inside, shock is in the middle, but we, we, we all seem present. And it's just little things like that, because when you put in the work, you want, you want to see the equity in it, all right? So when the, that last record happened, you know, even Bob Monaco uh, was always trying to get Shaka to leave Rufus so he could just have her, so he could take her by herself. You know, if he had, if he had done that, okay, it wouldn't have worked, you know, because she needed the protection. She needed to be with us up to a certain point, which was a launch pad, 
you know, because on, on our own, on our own devices, there's too many other factors were going on at the time. So she had to go through it, but there was enough protection from the ban around her that she didn't, you know, totally get thrown out the window. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> and I, I, think, I think it was a good combination for better or for worse, that it was a school. It was like a school we went to. And after so many years, you graduate. That's what you're supposed to do, you know? And, and, and even, even uh, the, with Moon playing drums after me, I loved Moon because Moon played with uh, the Gap Band. Now the Gap Band backed up DJ Rogers. Now we're the only other band that I know of that Frankie Crocker booked into Madison Square Garden in New York. And we sold out three nights in a row. And, and the money never went to us. It went to Frankie Crocker. And he played our record till it warped. But him and his promoter put the show on. The record company paid for us to go there and perform. That was a way of paying him off to promote us. Well, he promoted the shit out of us. Matter of fact, they played the record so much, I got tired of hearing it. But anyway, DJ Rogers opened the show for us. And one of the drummers that he had that was also with the Gap Band was Moon Calhoun. I love Moon taking my place because one, he knew jazz feel and he knew how to, how to record. Okay. And uh, stay, he helped, he writes stay and his brushwork on destiny, you know, that's, that's from my brain. In other words, I would have approached it exactly the same way. He was perfect and he played great with Bobby, the bass player, you know, but Tony, the guitarist wasn't into him because he was too much like a drummer. He had too much of an opinion. And I, now Tony wanted to be leader. You know, people don't understand that real leaders didn't ask to be leaders, okay? So when I was mixing the records, the pink record you saw, all the other stuff that, that the ones whose finger was on those vocals was mine, okay? And Bobby and I would be in their record plant where they had Allison automation, which barely worked correctly. So a mix was actually a hand job. You had to make the moves if you didn't have enough hands, you had to get somebody to help you. No, no, that gets muted right here. Okay. So they, they called me fade master because I, I could, I could fade them good, but I'm the one with the fingers on that vocal. That's why you understood every word that Shaka said, because Andre's finger was on that vocal button as far as where the vocal set, because my father taught me a long time ago. It's, it's personality before, um, production technique. If you're selling production technique, that's when the music is louder than the vocal, okay? If you're selling the story or the essence of what this whole thing together is supposed to be, it's usually based upon the storyteller, the vocalist. He said, what are you selling? If I bring him a record, he can barely hear the words. He said, well, what are you selling? If you're selling the guitar part, the guitar part was written to accompany the story. So you're giving me an accompany part too loud and the story's too low. So that's why Shaka always had to be up. Same with Anita Baker records. When Anita's first record came out, a lot of people didn't always understand the lyrics because the vocals should have been just a little louder. Because we did that, I was Anita Baker's musical director too. So when I took another, her out- Another one of my favorites, yeah. Well, off of Angel, off the first album, that, that stayed on the chart for 56 weeks. Okay, we toured the country twice. By the time we hit the, the venue the second time, the whole audience sang every song, all right? Well, guess who played on that in the band with me? 
Bobby Watson from Rufus on Bass. Okay, Danny Ironstone, who I played with in John Burroughs Junior High on synthesizer. Okay, Donald Griffin on guitar, who was Billy Griffith's brother from the Miracles who took Smokey's place. Okay, that was the guitarist. And then uh, uh, Gary Glenn on the other keyboards. Gary Glenn is a songwriter, plays piano, who wrote Rapture. That was the band that backed up Anita. So Rapture was actually made up on the road with yours truly for the second record. Guess how Anita got her deal at Electra, which is Bab Krasnow again. Okay, I call Krasnow. Anita wants to get off of Beverly Glenn Records. Okay, she feels that the royalties aren't right. She doesn't want to be on the label. Beverly Glenn's trying to get her to go in the studio and record new material. She doesn't want to be on the label any longer. Okay, so I call Krasnow after the hit of Angel off their first album. I said, Kras, her contract's up. He's trying to record a lot of stuff on her, okay, to put it in the street in case she goes somewhere else or, you know, trying to put a second album on her. And he says, I love Anita Baker. I said, well, you're going to have to buy her last record. You're going to have to buy that. And you're going to have to buy whatever's been recorded on the shelf. Okay. So we set it up. He's interested. Okay. Otis Smith is the guy on Beverly Glenn label that has Anita and Bobby Womack. Okay. Otis Smith happens to be the ex-vice president of ABC Dunhill Records that promoted Rufus and Tell Me Something Good. So like I told you, the one person again. So I go to Otis and I said, look, Otis, Kraz is interested, but he's not going to put up with your bullshit. So Otis, the first thing he does is he says, I'll sell Anita's contract to you. And Kraz is like, sell it to me. It's almost up. So what I need you to sell to me is the, the, the stuff on the shelf. So Otis says, well, you take Anita and the back and the, the other material for a certain amount of money, Plus, what goes with it is you give me a job as vice president of a &R for your label, and my first project I'm in charge of is Anita. Krasnow flipped him the bone over the phone and hung the phone up. Calls him back again and says, look, final offer, here's the tracks, here's the amount of money. Otis sold. Didn't get a job, get, did none of that shit. Anita winds up, contract goes to... Uh, uh, idea goes to Krasnow. Krasnow calls me, says, Andre, you're in the contract to do at least four tunes on the next album. You know, that's why I maneuvered the deal. Okay. So what happens is, is uh, Sherwin Bash was uh, Anita's manager. Sherwin Bash is the partner of Dan Cleary. Dan Cleary was Natalie's manager. They had a company together. Sherwin Bash, I don't like him. I don't trust him. He's done some things here and there or whatever he's done. But me personally, that wasn't my favorite person. So, and also when he's managing Anita, Anita wants to get off the road. Every gig we do, she complains she's not making enough money. She feels that she's working for the manager. Okay, that's because she didn't know how to communicate or to negotiate properly. So I became a surrogate for her. And they even sent out a road manager that was scared of black people. So when a club owner jokingly told him he wasn't going to get his money that night, the guy got scared and left and never came back. And I got elected to be the road manager and the musical director and the drummer. Okay. Mm -hmm. So now I'm the confidant of Anita, Anita 
her telling me what her complaints are, her saying she's going to quit, she's not going to record anymore, she's going to go back and be a secretary in Detroit because of Sherwood Bash and because of Otis Smith and Beverly Glenn. You, you, you can't make up this stuff, all right? So finally, after talking with Kraz, Kraz calls me back. He said, you were in the mix when the papers got made up. When the paper came back from Sherwin Bash and Anita's camp, you were no longer in it. You know what Kraz now did? Express mail or I, I, it came to me the next day. So it wasn't UPS. I think they had courier. I think he, he was able to get a Warner courier from a Warner flight from a time time Warner. Cause we, they, I took flights on different record companies had planes at MCA. I took the MCA jet. All right. So what happens is uh, I got money. I got a, a check for 25,000 from Bob Krasnow the very next day delivered to me. And in other words, I'll, if they're not watching out for you, I'll watch out for you. The 25 was to say, thank you for turning me on to Anita Baker. All right. And Anita was cool with Kras until Kras left. When Sylvia Roan became head of Electra, and Natalie and Anita were both on the label, they both had problems with her. She, she paid from others too. Yeah. She patronized them. She didn't know how to talk with them. You know, and 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 uh, that that's a whole another story. We'll go into that some other time. But but the deal is, is I went through that with Anita. I went through her complaints. You know, being a musical director, I had to deal with the fact that she drank grape juice. She drank the wrong thing. She wouldn't put a wrap around her neck. I told her we needed to change the key of some of the songs because a lot of the some of the keys that you recorded are what we call stretch keys. Sometimes you'll sing a part for your record that if you do that every night, it's not good for your, for your voice. So Anita, I wanted to, to retune some of the songs. Although when you change the tune of the song, when people are used to hearing it on the radio, it changes the energy. Okay. Unless you're Aretha Franklin or Shaka. Okay. But Anita didn't sing a lot of heavy high notes, did she? She worked that rhythm. She would work the rhythm to death. Very different from Shaka, yeah. Anita was such a groove, man. Oh, man, I really enjoyed working with her because it was like it was like an R&B Saravon. It was, it was kind of in that, in that space. I thought that was so enjoyable. Plus, I had my ace buddy, Bobby Watson, was on bass next to me, and that was my Rufus guy. Bobby and I played on the Renee and Angela stuff. We played on a lot of other people's stuff. So that, that he was like, you know, we're right and left hand, you know. So that that was very enjoyable. But that's that's uh, my Anita experience at Electra. And uh, I was and, a fan of hers even when she was with Chapter Eight. Yes, oh, I like Chapter Eight too. I did too, man. I, I did too. I, I thought uh, I always thought her voice was was outstanding. Another singer that I used to, uh, I wound up signing to MCA, which I always enjoyed, was Vesta Williams. Um, Vesta was great. Uh, there was a, a girl out of New York who was great uh, that, that we had to drop off MCA. Her name was Jackie McGee. There's a bunch of great songs that, that I've seen record companies totally destroy people's careers with, this, with the sign of a pen, you know, or, or to take something which is bubbling under and not get behind it, you know. 
Gladys did a record that I that I did uh, the medley on. It's an 11 minute medley of uh, if you don't know me by now, uh, it takes a fool and end of the road. I put those three tunes together in a medley that she was doing live too. And I put a band together as well as her rhythm section and singers and went to the hit factory in New York and recorded in front of an audience of 90 people in the studio that were made up of disc jockeys. And those same kind of people I told you I party with. All right. And Gladys was freaked out because when she walked into the studio, I guess no one at the company before me had kept their word. But I told her exactly what time to be there and what was happening. And I, when she walked in the door, she was in shock because everything I said was there. The musicians and Vanessa Williams and other entertainers were even there in the control room to watch her. I had it catered. I had the disc jockey sitting out in the control room. And I took the monitors, you know, because sometimes you, you'll get uh, out of phase and, and, uh, uh, or feedback from the microphone. So I, I figured out a way with the engineer to, to put this, the monitors out of phase that were facing the, uh, the audience. And instead of giving her a, a microphone where she had to stand in one spot, I got a, a, a long wire and got her, the, I forget the number of the microphone, but the one Andy Williams would use on his television show. Excellent sounding microphone. Okay, so she could, she could move for a while, all right? I asked her to sing one, one song, uh, which would be a warm-up for her, and then go into the medley. When Gladys walks in the room, she's on. As soon as she sees the band, her musical director's there, B Benjamin Wright, okay? And, and her musicians are there, and strike up the band, and there's the horn section. But she, she does half a set. Instead of one song, she does half a set, then goes into the medley. She killed it. She killed it. You know where I am? In the control room, thanking God and crying like a baby. I'm crying because what a consummate woman Gladys was. From the very first note to the last, once she stepped in front of an audience, she was on. Perfect, man. And I saw Vanessa was there. Vanessa Williams was standing next to me, and she came to visit. And Vanessa just stood there and shook her head, and she smiled. You know, so she had the love of her peers and everyone else in the room. Engineer I brought from L.A. with me, Woody Woodruff. And uh, we had two machines going, which meant if I ran out of tape, I had a, another multi-track right next to it ready to, to shift. And I even had a, a, a two-track stereo machines going off the stereo bus just in case I had to record some things because it was, for all practical purposes, it, it was a recording, but it was also live because you heard the audience, Okay. And then, you know, the disc jockeys went crazy. And to be truthful, now the people who, who still work at MCA are probably all long gone. But I leaked that record to jocks in, in the states and in the stations I knew that normally would play Gladys anyway. There are certain stations that will play your record because they're a fan of your stuff and they've always played it. You know what I'm saying? Like if it was James Brown or Sly and the Family Stone. Yeah, we, you know, we always play Sly. So I, the stations that always played Gladys... I gave him exclusives, which meant I leaked the record out before it was released. Okay. They carded it up. Okay. After I snuck the record out. All right. It was an R and R charting and the record wasn't even out yet. The promotional department freaked out. They wanted to know who did that. The marketing department was crazy. They were pissed off, you know, because there was no product in the store. 
Okay. So one guy said, well, let's call them or let's sue them and make them stop playing it. I said, why are you going to sue a station that you're going to beg to play it a month from now? All right. So they didn't know what to do. So what I did is I went to Randy, the head of marketing, and Toy Maritomo, who's in manufacturing. I said, though, take advantage of this is to be able to call the radio stations and have them slow their rotation down. Okay. You got to be able to get me product in the stores in less than two weeks. Okay. The first place you get the product to is the cities where the record's already being leaked. Okay. And then they think they have an exclusive on it. And then that product comes in, it's going right out the door. And that's exactly what happened. Okay. So I, I never told anybody that I leaked the record. There's a couple people that knew because I was trained by promotional people how to do the shit. But the one I had to lie to was Randy and Randy was head of marketing, you know, and I was nonchalantly telling him that, you know, if we just put it up, the, the artwork's already ready. They took one song off of the medley and put it in a video. I guess it, it was on TV. I don't know where they, it's, the video was out, but they took it from the end of the road medley. Then we called um, uh, the ex, ex VP of uh, MCA, uh, who wound up running Motown. Um, oh, Jesus, I forgot the gentleman's name. A black it's gentleman. It's not Gerald Busby? Gerald Busby. We called Gerald, and uh, Gerald let us have boys to men to be in her video. So the video was done just of the end of the road part of the song. And I promised Gladys a gold record, all right? Because when she came to me, she didn't have all the songs finished, and something was missing. That's when I went and recorded the medley. And when I got the mix of Gladys's album, all the other people that had worked on it, all the mixes, the vocals were too low. How do you make a low vocal on a Gladys Knight record? It's like they were busy pushing their promotion, their production technique and not the artist. It's always personality before production. That's what you're selling is the personality. Gladys is the personality. So that, that information for me as a producer is, is innately in me when I'm doing that record. I remixed the record that other people had done. Okay, they would not give me another mix because they'd been paid already. And they didn't have enough professionalism to say, you know what, that's Gladys, I'll give you another mix. It's on me. So I got Mick Gazowski who did Mariah Carey and the other folks for CBS, he sat with me and we redid all of Gladys's record. Jimmy Jam Terry gave me a song too. I flew to Minneapolis and, 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 uh, and brought them some money. <laughs> and they, they did another tune on Gladys. But I promised her a gold record, it went gold. So I kept my word at MCA, you know? And, and I did that based upon all the experiences I told you about that happened before then. Okay, because no one else takes you. No one is more concerned with your well-being than you are. You keep thinking other people because you're involved. You're making the money. That it's like having a record company be concerned about culture, you know, or to, to, you know, gangster rap or things that are denigrating. That's not their job. Their job is they go to bed with dreams of sales. A musician doesn't go to bed with dreams of sales. You go to bed with dreams of, of creation. Those are two different energies, okay? It wasn't supposed to merge. There's, there was always going to be that disconnect, all right? Yeah, art and commerce. 
Yeah, because it, it's not Star Trek yet. It's not, you know, when they asked Picard, well, here's some money. He said, oh, we don't use money anymore. The human condition, well, what kind of job do you have? Well, we don't have jobs. We do endeavors that, that are positive and add to the world. You know, well, that shit ain't here yet. God bless you, Gene Roddenberry. But I think that's also why I used to watch that show, because it was always the hope of what it could be. Utopia. Yeah, yeah same with the United States. It's, it's <laughs> the hope of what we can be as opposed to what we are day to day. People, it's like people talking about Biden. That airlift, man, that was a hell of a airlift. The people do not realize what it takes to coordinate that, what it takes to coordinate one plane on one runway. You know, and having to refuel in the air, carrying all the people in there, man. That was a gigantic feat they just pulled off. I don't care whose decision to do what. I'm just so thankful. They, they pulled it off, man. That was a serious. And I looked at the equipment. They've, they've shown CNN people going through those uh, hangars and stuff about what equipment was left. Americans know how to jack their shit up. None of that stuff will work after they leave. They took everything. They, I saw Black Hawk helicopters. I saw other helicopters. They just totally jacked them up. So if the Taliban can make those fly, they deserve to fly. <laughs> you know, but, but also, too, first thing the people in Afghanistan are talking about, okay, y'all got, you all took us over, right? We're hungry. The, the, the rule of countries is if you can't feed the people, you can't run the joint. What, what have you taken over? You know, what you've taken over is the responsibility to feed your people and take care of them. If you can't, you have nothing. You have nothing. So it, it's the same in, in the music business. If you don't take care of each other, if we don't covet the craft, you know, if we don't covet the artist and, and, and make this a special idea, because you know, we're not putting pins and bones and working in children's hospitals. So the relevance of what we do is at a certain level. And to make it mean more, it means we have to be the kind of people that are respected. But to be respected means you have to be respectable. Okay? And you have to do things which, which make sense or to pass it on. To do the culture properly. Every time Aretha Franklin sang, it was Sunday to me. When she'd sing, you know, when she'd sing, it was like, it was like I was in her dad's church in Detroit. There's something that she had that, 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 that gospel flavor in whatever she did, even when she sang the opera piece at the Grammy when Pavarotti didn't show up. She, she transported you there. She transported me there, man. And, and what other things do you know in life transport us like that? I can look at your face when I'm talking about music, and you're, you're, you love music, man. I can see your face. You, you, you freaking love music, man. So do, my life. Yeah. So, do I, so do I, man. And, and that's the bottom line of all the stories, of all the information I've given you, whether I was married to Natalie or whatever happened to any of this, it, it, was, it was all based on music. So no matter what my stories are, no matter where I go with it or where I came from, I wind up at the same, at the same place. And I listen to music now that my mom and dad have passed and my Uncle Claire has passed too. Uh, there's a passage in Gate of Dreams, which is a Klaus Ogerman album that Tommy LaPuma produced and Al Schmidt was the engineer on, done in, I think, 1978, called Gate of Dreams by Klaus Ogerman.
um, Michael Brecker's on it, Joe Sample, John Guerin, uh, different people. But the, the orchestrated piece is Klaus Ogerman. There's some sections that it will get to, and as I listen to it, there's a part that it goes to that as soon as it goes there, immediately it reminds me of my father. And I begin to cry just like Nina did that day because it's how much I miss him because of all the things he's exposed me to. And I, and I would turn the tape off. I couldn't listen to it all. It just, it, it's kind of, it's like I was saving myself from total breakdown, okay? Now I play it and I let it finish. I still cry, but I smile at the end now because of, because of through that music, he still lives for me in my heart, my father and my mother and all these great people that have come before us. I so much miss Donnie Hathaway. I produced Layla's first album. Uh, and I took other people's productions and had to totally redo all the vocals because all of them had tried to tell her how to sing. And I came involved, and the first thing I did is I replaced everyone's vocals, and then the songs I did with her, she helped me arrange the backgrounds and did what she wanted to do. You know who taught her at Berkeley? My mentor, Richard Evans. You know who was the arranging teacher for Esperanza Spalding? Richard Evans. So like, again, we're all passing in the night playing tag, all right? So that, that makes me feel really good. But, but the music that I hear now, uh, th those memories are so sweet. But it's not just the old stuff. It's to make new memories. And that's what I'm doing with my 13-year-old. I'm exposing him to new stuff. And I do stuff with him musically and and riding our bikes and all the other kinds of things we do. So when one day he'll wake up, he'll have that memory, that positive memory of what this life can be, you know? And to me, music is just like hope. It, it gives us a glimpse of what everything could be or how it is now if you choose that to be the thing that, that, uh, that relaxes you, that satisfies you. So uh, I'm, ve I'm very blessed in that. I'm very respectful and very thankful to, to Shaka, to Yvette. Um, w when I met her, she was a, a, a rough ball of energy, but still that missile was taken off and it was gonna go somewhere no matter what. Uh, she's, she's such a, a sweetheart. I call her Shockwave, that was my nickname for her. And uh, she's also the reason my marriage broke up, but we'll get into that some other time. Um, but the, the deal is... I, I is could that, yeah, I could talk to you forever. <laughs> you got so many great stories. She, she, she's, she's, very, she's very special to me. And uh, even, even the, uh, the fight I had with her husband um, after that, that last record where we're little tiny people, there was a problem in the studio where the husband gave me some shit. I took him in the ladies' room and, and gave him a spanking. And that, that caused a, a lot of problems. But I never had a, any problems or any uh, altercations with anybody in the group. It was always outside people. It was always outside people trying to get in. You know, and you don't get into a family like that, you know, as far as that's concerned. So, so to, to me, she's, she's still my girl. That's Shockwave. I, 
I, I miss seeing her more often, but when I do, we're cool. We, we were together um, maybe two years ago, me and her and Bobby. Uh, this guy was trying to do a documentary and he was doing some advanced footage and interviews. And uh, Shaka was there. We were hang- me and Bobby were hanging out with her for a minute. People also don't know that uh, after I left Rufus, we got back together again when she did uh, uh, I Feel For You, or Ooh Shaka Shaka Shaka, with that album. Well, what was the band that toured with her on that album? It was We Got Back Together Again. Me, Bobby, Tony, Michael Ruff on keyboard, Donald Griffin, who I told you, that guy I took with Anita, he played with Tony, and we had another keyboard player. And Vesta Williams sang background, Sean Christopher, which is Gavin Christopher's sister, and, uh, and another singer. The vocals were fierce. We played up and down the West Coast. We went to Japan. We did Osaka, Tokyo, all the places. And then we ended up back at the Universal Amphitheater and did, did the show uh, at the Amphitheater. So it's like 84, 85? Yeah. And so we got together for a short period of time. And then uh, I, I think I wound up going back with uh, Anita. I went with Anita after that. But I also played with uh, Etta James during that time. With Smitty and uh, the, the guitarist that's with uh, Paul McCartney now. Um, I forget his name. Blonde hair. Um, Hamish Stewart? No, no, no. Hamish was from Average White Band. I know Hamish... Um, Hamish and I would hang out with Ned Doheny. Uh, love of your own. Uh, uh, Hamish, I know. I knew Robbie McIntosh, the original drummer with the Average White Band. Uh, and then he passed away. Uh, he also played with Brian Auger in the Oblivion Express. Uh, that was also Brian Auger and, and Julie Driscoll. Brian Auger and the Trinity, he was called. Uh, I used to see them all the time when I go to England. Um, Elton became a good friend. Uh, Elton John and Rocket Records. And uh, that's the label Brian and Brenda were on. Matter of fact, I had to deal with Elton's company to get Brenda's contract dropped in order to do her first album, which we sold to uh, Tommy LaPuma at Horizon Records. So I I get around, dude. Yeah, you definitely got around. playing drums with Curtis Mayfield uh, on the Chitlin circuit, um, you know, freezing in a tour bus and people pissing in a coffee can in the back of the bus and stopping at truck stops where half the truck stops wouldn't service because it was in the South. And most of the truck, truck drivers, there weren't any black truck drivers. It was a black bus driver. He stopped us at a truck stop. They almost ran us out of town. So it, it, was, it was really interesting. So from that... I wound up as a VP over 20th Century Fox Music Publishing. Then I wound up working for Quincy as vice president of his jazz a and for Quest. Uh, I lived four years in uh, Paris for Michel Jonez Productions and uh, helped produce a, a local uh, international variety show there in Paris and musical director for this guy. Then his band was chosen to represent French culture and he was sent to all the French-speaking countries and ex-colonies as an example of French culture. So we went everywhere. I spent months in Morocco and Rabat and Meknes and Tangiers and Marrakesh performing with this guy, you know, and all over the place. 
So I did that and, and uh, brought two of my kids, lived with me. I homeschooled them, living in Paris, lived on the left bank. I wake up in the window and in my window was the Eiffel Tower. They said, where do you live? I said, I live in a postcard. Hmm. So I remember, you know, running with my kids to the subway and, and drinking my espresso and taking the baguette home at, at night. So I've been through that. I lived in Tokyo uh, uh, for a year. I lived in London. Uh, spent time in Copenhagen, San Francisco, Atlanta, uh, New York. I lived in Brooklyn, the Bronx, Flatbush, Queens. Uh, I lived all over the, the place. So all of these things were all connected to music. Every last thing. Well, music uh, connected us for this. So yeah. I'm grateful for that. I'm really grateful for you spending so much time with me and, and for the viewers and the history is amazing, and I hope we can connect again because you got so many stories. Well, I I got I have to I have to log it, and uh, because there's a couple of folks who want me to do a a, a book. The, the thing is 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 that in in the book it's not so much talking about my life. What's cool about the the life is the people you've encountered. It's not just my personal life. It's the fact of talking about a conversation I had with Cornell Dupree. Or, or, or hanging out with uh, Idris Muhammad, who was the drummer with hair. You know, I, I subbed for him. He made me come see the show, okay? And then he wasn't supposed to have a night off. He took a night off. I'm playing drums with hair in New York in 1968 because of Idris Muhammad. Ronnie Dyson and Melba Moore were in the show. Hmm. Okay, so people said, you remember hair? I said, yeah, I was in the pit band. Okay, or, or Harold Vick or the musicians that played with Ruben Phillips' band at the Apollo. I'm sitting on the back steps of the Apollo in the summertime, getting ready to go on, sitting with Eddie O.J., who the O.J.'s is who they named themselves after, who was a disc jockey. And he's telling me about Hank Ballard. He's telling me about uh, um, Alan Freed in the Paramount Theater in Brooklyn. You know, and, 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 uh, and how disc jockeys got paid off and how certain artists came to be in race music and, and Pat Boone covering Little Richard. And I mean, I learned so much. So it's like, I, I got to put this down, not for me as much as these people, where they came from, all the things they taught me. Because a lot of folks gave me their history and folks that they knew. When I joined the Impressions, the guitar player was Sonny Forrest. Sonny Forrest was the original guitar player with Sam Cooke and Jackie Wilson. Can you imagine the stories came to me? And his best friend was Eddie Lockjaw Davis from Count Basie's band. Okay, the keyboard player was Melvin Jones, who'd been with Baby Huey and the Babysitters. His brother was Harold Jones. The drummer was Sarah Vaughn. That's who I used on Unforgettable to play on The Very Thought of You. That's who wound up going on the road with Natalie as her drummer, was Melvin's brother, because I played with them in 1968. Did, did I hear you right? Are you working on a book? I, I, I'm, I'm putting together stuff to, to make a book. So I, I, I need to gather as much as I can. And it, I'm good that my memory is still good without being too um, demonstrative. In other words, without painting more of a picture of it than it actually was. Because I find some people's memories aren't necessarily accurate. It, they, it's like they make up a little bit each time they tell it. 
and I've noticed myself that I'm pretty accurate the, the majority of the time, it's, especially if I keep it about the other person and, and what the interaction was, as opposed to, you know, whatever I was going through at the time. The gift I've been given is the fact that I am, is the fact that I breathe. That's the miracle. The rest is gravy. Okay? We all think it's this accomplishment, but that's, 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 that's a fixture. That man, man living in his head, he made that shit up. That's, it's like, here's gold and it's worth something. Says who? <laughs> you know? It's like, I'd rather be like an African tribe. You know, worship my old lady's coochie and, you know, and some root vegetables and the sun and the water. I think nature winds up being God anyway. And, you know, all that's left of the Romans is some old buildings and some old steam baths and a couple of cobblestone highways. Na nature and the art we can make. Dude, you just closed me. That's the end. You just made the end. Nature and art we can make. The rest of it's bullshit. <laughs> I'm with you, man. I'm with you. You take care of yourself. At Twin Cities Mobile Jazz on Facebook and uh, mobilejazzproject.org. Uh, and I, I love with the kids, and they're making great product. I'll even send you some copies of some of the tracks they've put together. Cool. Yeah, and you, you'll laugh because they're really cool. Uh, I'll, I'll send you some of the tracks. Fantastic. And thank you again so much. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Truth and Rhythm. A big thank you goes out to our guest as well as to you, the viewer and listener. Also, much gratitude to Pleasure for supplying the show's funky opening and closing music. As a reminder, you can always access the complete list of linked shows by episode at funkinstuff.net. I urge you to support this program and receive the extra benefits along with that by subscribing to the Funk and Stuff channel on YouTube and sharing it with funk, R&B, and jazz lovers, joining Truth and Rhythm's membership program at Patreon, submitting a donation at funkandstuff.net, buying Everything is on the One, the first guide to funk book at Amazon, shopping at the Funky Things store for cool merchandise at funkandstuff.net, and linking through funkandstuff.net for all of your Amazon purchases. In addition, if you're an artist or anyone seeking proven, results-oriented, professional marketing, PR, writing, or editing consultation or production, check out the Media Services section at FunkinStuff.net. Also, I encourage you to drop me a line at scottg at FunkinStuff.net. I love the feedback, suggestions, guest requests, appearance and sponsorship inquiries, and just talking about my favorite subject, groove-based music. For now, and as always, this is Scott Dr. GX Goldfine saying, keep on keep vibing on to the rhythm of the one.